I have decided that this New Year's, I am not going to say this is going to be my year. Oh. Because I think that all of this was just to spite me. All right, we, we diving in. We ready? We got everything? Everyone's here? Mm-hmm. I've been working on this tagline all week. Here we go. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Hello, and welcome to Yule Wrong About. Yay! <laughs> That's beautiful. That's all I got. Can we put in some sleigh bells? If we put in sleigh bells, it makes everything Christmassy. I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm working on a book about the Santa Nick panic. Oh, my God. Huh? <laughs> And if you want to support the show, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about. And today we are talking about festive things. We are. And I told you we were going to do a Santa episode. Yes. And once again, I changed my mind and decided to do a switcheroo. (laughs) But it's still festive and it still has a Santa theme because Santa has left a book in my stocking and it is Paula Barbieri's The Other Woman. Oh. We're going to talk about Paula. That's festive? Is Paula festive? Well, people have been asking for O.J. Simpson episodes for six months. So if it's not festive, then I have nothing for anyone. <laughs> I think, don't you think that a festive uh. gift is something that someone has been asking you for? I just thought festive was a synonym for Christmas. I think that's very offensive of you. <laughs> <laughs> so... We were originally going to be doing a Christmas episode because Mike figured out that holiday episodes are important to me and (laughs) offered one to me as a Christmas gift. And then I was like, you know, it would be a better Christmas gift for me going off book again and talking about Paula Barbieri for two hours. Yes, I'm jingling my little uh, reindeer boots over here. Little bells. (laughs) So take two. Today we're talking about Paula Barbieri and returning to the O.J. Simpson trial. Yes, we are. I got you an O.J. Simpson trial episode for Christmas. I've been up all night trying to put the little train tracks together. (laughs) So Mike, just to start on a smaller scale, who the heck is Paula Barbieri? Uh, Paula Barbieri is O.J. Simpson's girlfriend Mm -hmm. who decided to stay with him through the trial because she was convinced that he was innocent. And so she decided to support her boyfriend and stick with him. Meaningfully. She was not his girlfriend as of the morning of the murders because she had left him a voicemail breaking up with him and then flown to Las Vegas to be with Michael Bolton. Yes. And then came back because he was in a crisis and she has a complicated upbringing that makes her respond to people in crisis and want to rescue them. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, her complicated upbringing could also just be described as like being a woman in America. (laughs) But yeah. And OJ Simpson was having a crisis. And the crisis was that his ex-wife, Nicole, and Nicole's acquaintance, Ron Goldman, had just been murdered. Yes. And so Paula comes back to L.A. and is like, oh, my goodness, this man who I just broke up with because our relationship was impossible, his ex-wife has just been murdered. And so we saw in her book her description of her experience of the slow Bronco chase. Mm -hmm. O.J. had sent her away from his house earlier in that day, put her in the car and told her to go marry some nice guy from her hometown. He was like stroking her cheek like Casablanca. Yeah, this book is a collection of men 
saying goodbye to Paula and putting her on various vehicles. <laughs> and so OJ like tries to do maybe the right thing and send her away out of this mess. And also he doesn't want the media to see her. Mm-hmm. And so at the time that he is in the white Bronco, she is sitting in her friend's house, watching it on TV and trying to astrally project herself basically into the car with him so that she can keep him alive, keep him calm, keep him from dying, which is basically her only concern at this point, which Mm -hmm. I think is, you know, like a week ago, she had broken up with this guy after deciding that she couldn't handle the way that he was treating her anymore and just having her heart played with. And now somehow his having apparently committed two murders has been able to bring them closer together than ever before. I know this. I've done this. You're like, oh, this isn't working. And then some sort of external thing happens. And you're like, oh, I guess we will get back together, even though it makes no logical sense. Mm-hmm. But you're just like they're in crisis or I'm in crisis or whatever. And you just go back to what's comfortable. Yeah. You're just like, I'll find a time to break up later after we're both dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think of this as season two of our OJ episodes. Okay. We've done the first 10 episodes. We have done basically the history leading up to the night of the murders and then the week of linear time following the murders. Mm-hmm. I realize this is asking a lot, but can you <laughs> just summarize a little bit? Like, what have we been through? What is the story about? Oh, my God. Who are some of the people in it? Like, just, right. you know, do a previously on. See, I can, I'll try to summarize our episodes at a one to 10 scale. So I'll talk for an hour and 25 minutes. Okay. <laughs> so basically, we originally met Nicole, who met OJ basically as soon as she turned 18. And was in this horrifying relationship with him that started off abusive and just got worse and worse and worse and eventually culminated in what we believe to be his murder of her and Ron Goldman, this kind of bystander guy who just happened to be there that night. Mm-hmm. And then we met Marsha and we met Mark Furman and we met all the investigators who start looking into the crime scene at Nicole's apartment And it is, again, what we consider to be crystal clear that OJ has committed this crime. I don't like to speak confidently about anyone's guilt at a a part of the story where they haven't gone to trial yet. But, like, it looks real bad. There is blood all over the goddamn place. Yes. I still think that the best evidence is the fact that this is a longstanding domestic abuse situation. And then she turns up dead, which, like, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be the husband who does it, the abusive husband. So I still think that's pretty open and shut, but there's a lot of other evidence indicating that he did it. And then the cops pick him up and he gets even more suspicious. There's like a cut on his hand that he like doesn't have a really very good explanation for. His alibi is super weak sauce, Mm -hmm. but because he's OJ and he's won the Heidelberg trophy or whatever, the cops let him go after like 30 minutes. They're just like, okay, OJ says he didn't do it, so he probably didn't do it. (laughs) And then Marsha Clark starts looking into this and is like, are you fucking kidding me? I can't do clapping because I'm holding a microphone in one hand, but she's like really (laughs) mad. And the cops are just like not taking this seriously. And she's like, shouldn't we be arresting this dude? He's obviously a flight risk. He's like a literal millionaire. And then eventually she impanels a grand jury and like takes over the investigation. And finally this kicks the cops into gear and they take him into custody. Yes. And she meets Kato Kalin and they face off. That was a fun episode, Sarah. Thank you. I liked that episode. Yeah, see, there you go. You summed it up. Oh, and then we had a Bronco chase. Oh, yeah. And then he's like in some sort of like mental health spiral 
And he gets in the Bronco intending to kill himself, and his friend Al Cowlings drives him to Nicole's grave, but there's too many photographers there, and then they come back, and he's got the gun to his head, and eventually, I mean, like you said, we call it a chase, but it's really just like a follow. They follow him back to his house, and then he pulls into the driveway, and they arrest him, and they take him to the police station. Yeah. So we ended our Bronco chase episode, our Bronco motorcade episode, Mm -hmm. with OJ stepping out of the car where he had been having basically an extended standoff with the cops Mm -hmm. and he gets taken into jail and we are now going to go to Paula Barbieri and talk about what she is doing in the aftermath of the Bronco chase and as her man is being processed. She is at the North Pole. She is wrapping presents. Oh, yeah. I'm sticking with the festive theme. Kind of, because she flees L.A. to go to Tennessee for three weeks. Okay. So Paula is heading to Tennessee to be with her friends, the Whitehursts, Mm -hmm. whose daughters, Debbie and Terry, are her good friends and who are kind of, I think, a second family for her. Mm -hmm. So they come and pick her up in Memphis on the morning of June 18th. And Paula writes, my friends were sweet and affectionate, as always, and knew better than to mention OJ. The previous day's events soon seemed far away, until we stopped at a McDonald's drive through We passed a newspaper box, and there was the Memphis Commercial Appeals banner headline about OJ. His arrest was treated like World War III. It was then that I started to realize that I could fly away, but I couldn't hide. And so they head to a small town outside of Memphis, and basically just take care of Paula. She's like someone being taken to Jimmy Carter's brother's ranch. Oh, yeah. Uh, Deep cut. (laughs) And they put her in Debbie's old bedroom and give her a canopy bed. And Mm -hmm. she says, it gobbled me whole. I felt like a princess in a perfect world. But she has given the number there to OJ's assistant, Kathy Randa. And so that night, OJ called me from jail for the first of a thousand times. Oh, man. I'm so sorry for scaring you that way, OJ said. I should never have put you through all that. He was plainly remorseful about having taken off in the Bronco with a gun. That's all right, I said. And it was. I was just so glad to have him on the line. Are you okay? I'm not okay, he said. But you don't have to worry. I'll never try anything like that again. Wait, so did he Casablanca send her away and then immediately try to get back with her? As soon as he gets access to a phone? I feel as if what's happening for him here is that this suicide attempt or suicide threat or whatever, I think it's both at once, that this thing that he has just put her through has wiped the slate clean. This is a sign. Don't be with people that treat you like this. Like, are just constantly calling emotional mulligans. Yeah. It doesn't count if they have to cut into an NBA final. (laughs) It's so weird to roast him. For being like kind of a manipulative prick when like we also believe that he murdered his ex-wife. Like it's weird. Like the scale of those two things is off, but also it is dickish to be emotionally manipulative. I feel as if it's more satisfying to me to just sort of roast someone for being a dick than to like be like, what an evil person. I know. Because like, A, I don't believe in the concept of evil, you know, as something that exists independently of human behavior. Mm. And B, I think that talking about someone's evil or whatever gives them a form of power. Mm. You know, we act as if destructiveness or the ability to do violence. I feel as if we've created a culture in America that suggests that that's worthy of respect. Mm. It's just sad and destructive and stupid and avoidable a lot of the time. And like just talking about how 
awful and terrible someone is, it's like, I just rather talk about what a fucking dick I think this guy right. is. Cause I think that that is belittling to him. In a yes. Way that, like <laughs> doesn't give him any respect, which making yeah. him seem powerful in any way offers him. I think one of the sort of like misogynistic critiques of women is that like they're they're governed by their emotions. So like we fundamentally can't trust them. Like I think this is underlying a lot of societal misogyny. Mm, but then yeah. when men are clearly acting according to the whims of their emotions, we find ways of not calling it that. Mm -hmm. He is feeling things and he is doing things on the basis of his feelings right now. And he has oh, yeah. throughout this entire story. But we have these sort of like euphemisms for talking about that in a way that we don't with women. Well, and I, I think we've talked about this before, but I feel as if, especially now, we're living in a culture that refuses to recognize male anger and aggression as fundamentally emotional. Like, I don't think that our culture of masculinity in America recognizes anger as an emotion and as an emotional response. Sarah, I'm glad we're back to doing this. I missed this. Are you, do you miss OJ? I missed OJ. What did you miss about OJ? Just talking about trash masculinity. There's so many. Yes. There's, <laughs> there's so many fun, interesting dimensions of the way that sort of wealth and celebrity and masculinity warp the way we tell stories. And like, it's yeah. all here. It's all here. It's, it's, it's Santa's bag. I know. I have a friend who keeps trying to talk me into doing a spinoff podcast about the history of fisheries in America. Do you know what he wants to call it? You're wrong a trout. <laughs> That's good. But his suggestion is Codpast. <laughs> they're both, they're both winners, Sarah. It's got me hook, line and sinker, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, I'm your dad. Ordinarily, I would cut that out, but I'm leaving it in. Back to Paula. Paula writes, During the next three weeks I stayed in Tennessee, I spoke to OJ several times a day. We'd always know it was him calling. The operator would say, Collect from the county correctional facility. We talked endlessly for hours at a stretch. I put our past issues aside. They seem so trivial now. All that mattered was getting the man I cared about through to the next morning. Oh, he's putting all this emotion on her shoulders and she's just taking it. Yeah. She's just like, yep, I'll wear this backpack. It's like he is so incapable, apparently, of feeling or expressing any guilt about killing Nicole that Paula is feeling guilt for him. Yeah. We've talked a lot in our other episodes about her, about her feeling like it was it had to be her fault. It's her mm -hmm. fault that Nicole is dead. Because when she and OJ were together and Nicole was like always somewhere just around the corner, she just wished Nicole would disappear. And now she has. Yeah. Like Paula's blaming herself more for someone's death because she like wished she would disappear in some, you know, Twilight Zone way than the man who actually stabbed her to death. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like one of the reasons I love this book so much is that it's like this masterclass and like. How much can you possibly blame yourself for in a relationship that isn't your fault? Mm -hmm. And how much can you apologize for a partner who isn't treating you the way that you deserve and just like tough it out and peacemake and like how much damage can you metabolize? And it, <laughs> it turns out a lot. I'm sure nobody is thinking about those exact questions on Christmas Day this year <laughs> as we all spend time <laughs> with our families. Paula writes, OJ told me about his daily strip searches and how chilly his cell was. He needed a warmer sweater, he said, and some thermal underwear. His arthritis had flared up. His bed was so high he had trouble getting into it. When OJ talked about the bars staring back at him or his cold metal bench, I was right there with him. 
I melted into the jail as I had into the Bronco during the chase. No, it was more than that. I felt as if I should be in the jail. It would be so much easier if it were me instead of him. God. So basically when she's not on the phone with OJ listening to him complain, Paula says she is praying or watching CNN, waiting for someone to come on and announce like, this has all been a mistake. OJ is innocent. Sorry, Paula. And instead, on June 20th, she sees Marsha Clark's press conference where Marsha Clark says it was premeditated murder. It was done with deliberation and premeditation, which Mm -hmm. Marsha Clark also talks about in her book as something that in retrospect, she was very deliberate and committed with that language about her belief in in OJ's guilt in a way that was controversial. How does Paula feel about it? Does it make her second guess OJ's innocence? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. That sure is some nerve, I thought. How could Clark be so sure so soon when I knew she was so wrong? I worried about how her statement would affect OJ, who looked so weak at his arraignment that morning. Mm. When he'd stood to plead not guilty, I worried that he might fall down. So she's like bought into the OJ narrative. Oh, yeah. She's completely strapped in. And I feel as if the deeper we're getting into this, the more I see that, yeah, this is a very weird choice for a Christmas episode. But like, whatever, the whole podcast is a weird choice. So here we are. You know, something that people talk about a lot with regards to the show is empathy and how it, it tries to be empathetic with all its subjects. And that is really important to me. And it's important to empathize. But I also think that there's something that happens in relationships that I'm familiar with where you can lose sight of yourself. And you can always be entirely focused on feeling for the person that you're with and trying to mold yourself into the shape you need to be for the relationship to to be functional and believing in good faith the stuff that they say that they need from you and the stuff that they say is your fault. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that it's I just would like to say that I think it's possible to live empathetically and also have boundaries and ways that you require people to treat you. There's also, I mean, I think this is something that being in a bad relationship does to you is it makes you understand empathy as enabling, Hmm. right? That the only way to show empathy for somebody like this is to stick with them as they go through this trial for a crime that they probably did commit. There are other ways to be empathic of somebody and also break up with them. Yeah. I think that OJ, I don't attribute to him the kind of calculating forethought that would lead him to be like, I'm going to do this next fucking thing to get Paula on my side. I think he just knows how to do that. I think it's intuitive for him the way it is for a lot of people where like, if you're backed into a corner in a relationship, you find a way to create a crisis that binds your partner to you again, even if it's your fault Yeah, that you have both just gone through something traumatic because the point becomes not that you caused it, but that You've both been traumatized by it. Also, a lot of master manipulators are not sort of calculatingly manipulative. They're doing what feels good. Yeah. You get on a bicycle and you ride. You're not necessarily aware of every single thing that every muscle is doing at the time. And I think that works emotionally, too. Right. And I also feel like, you know, given the situation Paula's in, like, obviously, she can't throw a consensual breakup, which is why she initially tried to get out of this relationship by leaving a phone message and then bolting to Bolton. I think that, (laughs) thank you. Like, I don't imagine OJ Simpson being capable of accepting her being like, Hey, I care about you so much as a friend and you're so important to me. But like the fact that you're having a bad time 
doesn't mean that you get to just be in a relationship with me again. Right. <laughs> and just like you're, you're going to have relationships with people who can't accept your reasonable terms. And like the only thing to do is just accept them accusing you of being unreasonable. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's also something that Paula really can't handle doing, um, yeah. which uh, I get. We're both projecting all of our own shit onto this relationship. Completely. I'm not projecting. I'm reading <laughs> and I'm raising my hand at the parts I recognize. <laughs> so at the same time that this is going on, Paula is also getting calls from Tom Han, who's one of her agent guys. And he's like, I think that a good way to address all of this press attention that I'm fielding for you in L.A., you're welcome, is for you to talk to Diane Sawyer. Oh. Eh? So what do you think Paula does? Does she go on primetime live? She does. What? I was not aware of this at all. You know, no one cares about Paula. This is my whole thing. So the public is aware that O.J. Simpson has a girlfriend. Yeah. So she's becoming like a tabloid figure at this time. And she and also by doing this, she is offering herself as a spokesperson. Oh, shit. And I'm really curious about what didn't make it into the book. This is one of those areas where I'm like, there's just there's a there's a scene missing here because mm. here's what we get. Tom persisted. Just talk with Diane Sawyer. If you don't like her, you don't have to do a thing. Next paragraph. I reluctantly gave in. We arranged for uh, one of Mr. Whitehurst's pilots to bring up the primetime live crew in Memphis the next day and bring them back to the ranch. When I spoke to OJ that night, I didn't mention Diane. I felt oh. guilty about hiding it, but I didn't want to upset him. Besides, I still doubted that I'd go through with the interview. Then I spoke to Diane and I changed my mind as Tom thought I would. She was one person I decided who could get my story across without destroying my integrity. Oh, no. I was still anxious about putting OJ's case at risk, but how could I hurt anything as long as I told the truth? Uh, speaking of emotional manipulation, this is what journalists do for a living, is they talk you into doing interviews with them, and there's no accountability afterwards. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because I think people really uh. don't know what you're agreeing to if you consent to be on TV. I mean, this is the thing is all of the power for an interviewer is in the edit. Mm -hmm. If you have an hour of footage with somebody and you have, you know, a 15 minute slot to fill, if you want to make somebody seem callous and out of touch and unintelligent, you can take almost anybody and make them seem that way in 15 minutes. Which is why you and I are screwed. <laughs> <laughs> people, I don't think people understand this, that when you talk to a journalist, you talk to a journalist and then you just open the paper a couple days later and you're in there. You have no input. Yeah. And oftentimes you talk to a journalist. It's even worse in print. You talk to a journalist for an hour and one or two sentences get yeah. into the paper and you are not in control of what those sentences are. It's like being a cow and talking to like the person who's going to make a meatloaf out of you eventually and being like, people are going to know that I'm a cow, right? Yes. And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. It's weird that her agent is telling her to do this, honestly. Well, so, OK, I can imagine a few different scenarios here, because what happens as we move forward is that Paula does kind of she's useful to the defense team to the extent that she can be like the acceptable face of the OJ defense. Yeah. And I do wonder if rather than this being something she totally went rogue on, which I buy because I can understand like not telling someone that you're going to do something that you definitely should tell them that you're going to yeah. do yeah. because you fear their immediate reaction more than you fear the later consequences of doing that. Yes. So that's the thing people do. I've done that. I do that weekly. Me too. But it also makes sense to me that potentially there were some defense team conversations that were like, listen, 
It's going to look good for your boyfriend if you can get on TV and talk to a nice lady like Diane Sawyer and show how you, a nice lady, feel in your heart that this man is innocent. It's a good weapon for the defense because they have this hot lady who's going to go on TV and say he didn't kill this other woman that he was dating. I believe he's innocent. And who would know better than me? Exactly. Like, that's a very powerful weapon. Yeah. So she she at no point implies that this is something the defense team wanted her to do. But, mm. you know, there's a quick pivot there. Right. Would you like to see Paula on Primetime Live? Yes. Yay. Ooh, clip time. I love it when we watch clips. Remember when we didn't do clips? Oh, my God. Remember when we lived in the blue house? <laughs> I'm sending you this episode of Primetime Live, and we're going to jump to the Paula part. But I think first we should watch the intro just to remind us what 1994 felt like. Oh, no. Three, two, one, go. June 23rd, 1994. Tonight, you've heard about O.J. and Nicole Simpson. But now, someone else comes forward. He just gave me a big hug, and he had tears in his eyes, and he, um... He just said thank you. The woman he said goodbye to in his letter. Paula, what can I say? You are special. I'm sorry, I'm not going to have, we're not going to have our chance. Tonight, meet Paula Barbieri. She speaks by phone to Simpson almost daily and was with him the night before his wife was murdered. I think that we look like the epitome of happiness, I'm sure. An exclusive interview, Paula Barbieri comes forward with her story. Did O.J. Simpson ever hit me? If I were OJ's lawyer, I'd put her on TV. She looks like an angel. Yeah, she looks gorgeous. Big eyes, big mouth. She looks like Dr. Ellie Sattler. She really does. Same shorts. This is a weird episode because it's like mostly OJ and then they do a Julia Roberts interview. Like, and this! Sorry! A double murder and Julia Roberts. So this is six days after the Bronco chase and just like the news is cascading out. Yeah. Do you want to watch a little bit more? Sure. Okay. Why are you talking now? I know he didn't do it. I know he didn't do it. He's, um, there's no way he did. Um, he would never, if he did it, deny it. Barbieri is circumspect when talking about Nicole, but says that people should remember they haven't heard the whole story, even about the alleged abuse. Did O.J. Simpson ever hit you? No. He would never raise a hand to me. If he had ever done anything, you knew... Oh, weakness, right? well, just common sense. This is a football player. Somebody with Joe Namath's, you know, the same situation with the knees going on. If you see him walk with his son, he's got a knee problem. If, if he ever came at me, common sense, I would kick him in the knee. Like all America, she watched as Simpson and his best friend Al Callings drove the highways. Simpson with a gun to his head. When you were watching... The, the chase. Mm -hmm. Did you sense that he'd make it? When I heard from the detective that he said he wanted to talk to his mom, that's it. He's going to be okay. Really? Why? Yeah. Because the one thing that he just puts up on a pedestal is his mother. And there is no way once he gets on the telephone with her or gets to see her face that he could do that. How's she doing? Like, imagine that you're John Q. Driveway, June 23rd, 1994. Like, what, how mm. is this landing for you? I'm familiar with John's work. We've discussed it many times. We have, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> so we just watched the whole clip. We're not going to play the whole thing because it's like 15 minutes long. But it's basically a series of softball questions about how they met and what their last night at this black tie event was like. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of like easy questions that are just teed up to let her talk about what a great guy he is. And that's basically what yeah. she does. She just over and over again talks about how we were so happy and you know, Nicole was trying to get back together with him so we couldn't be together romantically. Mm-hmm. I think she's doing quite well. She's making like the emotional case for OJ. She's not exactly talking about like why her blood was in his car, etc. But it's just like he's not the kind of person who would do this, which is hilarious because he absolutely is the kind of person who would do this. Yeah. And so Paula is seeing him sending her away as thinking first of her and protecting yes. her. Because it would suck if she had to just be like, he's doing that because he doesn't want the media to see me. Right. And because he thinks that would look bad for him right now. Right. She thinks he's the last 10 minutes of Harry and the Hendersons. (laughs) He's actually the last 10 minutes of The Graduate. This to me is like one of the most interesting areas in Paula's book. Mm -hmm. I listen to that and I'm like, I believe that you believe that. Yes, That's the part that I find most distressing i guess it's just like i don't think she's lying i think that she's getting up there and speaking to the version of him that she has created through a combination of plausible deniability his good days and the way she has to see her world to feel sane within it yes it wasn't until watching it with you this time that i realized just how easy they're going on her And it also feels like Diane Sawyer is like trying to express a little bit of dubiousness, but not verbally. It's weird. (laughs) That's why she's a pro. It's also weird when they keep asking, you know, did he ever hit you or whatever, when we know from the intro to this episode that they have the tape of the 911 call that Nicole made to the police. Yeah. So it's weird to be like grilling Paula about did he ever hit you when it's not actually all that relevant if he ever hit her. We know that he was hitting Nicole. It's weird because the thing about the 911 call that they are talking about in this episode, there's two 911 calls of Nicole. There's two tapes. So there's the one from New Year's Eve where she calls and the operator doesn't even hear a human voice. They just hear her screaming Mm -hmm. and they send the police. And that's the time Mark Furman comes to OJ's house. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's the call that she makes from Gretna Green, where you can hear OJ in the background breaking down the door and threatening her. And the way that people are able to rationalize that later on is like, well, you know, he's yelling at her, but it is about her giving a blowjob to some guy which she knows about because he was spying on her at that time and staring in her window. Yeah, fucking hell. But people are able... To be like, you know, yeah, there's yelling and everything, but like, that's not proof positive that he was hitting her or that he would kill her. Like, that's people yell, whatever. (sighs) Paula does come off as a very good representative of the defense. Yeah. She comes off extremely earnest. But the problem is she's being manipulated by OJ to be that earnest. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of stacking the deck to have somebody like this representing the defense team and then also not asking her any tough questions about... What does explain all the evidence? Mm. Like, they never really press her on anything. And part of that is probably because she is kind of clueless, and I don't know what even she would say in response to that stuff. Right. Like, and maybe they did ask her, and she was like, I'm in Tennessee. Like, I don't know. Yeah. And she she does appear to be kind of intentionally keeping herself ignorant about the evidence as it is kind of coming out. But the problem is, like, all of that is very understandable. But then as a viewer, you come away from this with the impression of, like, well, there's this nice 
hot lady with full lips and a symmetrical face who says that this guy's really nice and he's being falsely accused of a crime and she seems pretty trustworthy yeah and so because she's never really pressed she never really stumbles over any of these softball questions you're just like well yeah i don't i don't see what the problem is he seems like a nice guy right and i feel like it's it's also interesting that this is at a time when like abc news is presenting in their like week after the murders week after the bronco case coverage of oj simpson they are as their lead story for the night putting together this interview that like it's not making actively the case that oj is innocent but it's just sort of without comment presenting the testimony of someone who loves him and who wants to believe that he's innocent yeah that is meaningful to like where things were at the beginning that people really wanted him to be innocent. I think that the, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about just sort of the love that America felt for O.J. Simpson at the time. Mm. And just, I feel like a lot of people were in Paula Barbieri's place. Yeah. Something I've also really wondered about a lot just (laughs) recently is how do you continue to love someone who is obviously never going to love you back Mm. because they can't? Mm. And like, why does that seem to get people addicted because of its very futility? Like, it seems like people keep going back to the impossible person who can never return their loyalty or their love, like not despite that, but because it's like that. What do you what do you think the explanation is? Oh, my God. I Well, I mean, one thought that I have is that love is very scary. Experiencing intimacy with someone and feeling seen and being truly known is like fucking terrifying. Mm. I mean, and then there's also the thing of like, people only know to ask for something that they know to exist. So if Mm. you just had bad relationships your whole life, then how do you believe that you could possibly ask for a good one? Yeah. Or imagine yourself worthy of one. You know, maybe we are partly drawn to people who can't love us back because we secretly feel that if someone really loved us, then they would see us as we are. And then seeing us that intimately would make them decide not to love us anymore and they would Mm. leave. And so it's better to just be a tool for a narcissist (laughs) than someone who's fully appreciated as a human. I don't think people have these thoughts consciously, but like, have I had them unconsciously? Yes. I mean, I've only ever made good romantic decisions, so I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) But I mean, it's also interesting the way that different people react to this quote unquote threat of intimacy. It's actually something that comes Mm -hmm. up in a lot of the literature on domestic violence, that one of the reasons why people can be so charming and generous to people outside of the relationship and so abusive to somebody within the relationship is precisely that there's only one person who knows them this well. And people can perceive that as a unique threat. Yeah. It's just interesting how this sort of perceived threat of somebody actually knowing you can tie you to that relationship. But it can also make you act horrifically within that relationship. Right. So here's what Paula says about the Diane Sawyer interview. Mm. While sidestepping Diane's questions about the nature of our relationship, I described OJ as sensitive and spiritual. He wasn't a drinker, I said, and he certainly wasn't a violent person. He never hit me. Has he ever yelled at you? Diane said. Have you seen the rages? He's never yelled at me like that, I replied. In my mind, he never had. We'd had our share of shouting matches, sure, but I couldn't remember any of them being really scary. Uh, I wasn't thinking about our fight in Laguna 
or OK's fit in Palm Beach. I had blocked those incidents so far out that they no longer existed. Uh, it was a time when I remembered only the good things. It's such a weird asterisk to be like, has he ever shouted at you? I answered no, because I didn't remember all the times that he had shouted at me. Yeah. Like, it's not normal to have a lot of shouting in a relationship. That's a bad sign. Unless you're married to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> then it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I mean, I do think that, like, you can be in a relationship where you haven't metabolized how bad things are until you're out of it, because mm. you can't. You have to kind of peacemake so relentlessly that you can't. Yeah remind yourself of just like i get yelled at a lot honestly and i don't like it yeah but also i i do feel like she's in a middle ground between like being in that place of genuine emotional denial about the substance of their relationship partly because she has already broken up with him and now is diving back into the wreck because he's been arrested so like she has admitted to herself mm. that she's done and still is going back in yeah so I feel like it's a combination of her genuinely believing that and then also that being very valuable for the defense. She's the perfect press foil for this defense right now. Paula writes, I worried that OJ would be angry when I told him about the interview, but he was surprisingly philosophical. Well, it's done now, isn't it? A few days later, as he heard good reviews from his friends, he passed on their compliments. He was proud of me and that felt so good. I wanted to do more. I wanted to shout out my faith in OJ to the whole world. If people could know him as I did, I thought he'd be out of jail tomorrow. Ugh. So June 23rd, primetime live airs. June 27th, we have the infamous Time magazine cover. Do you know about this cover? Oh, isn't this the one where they like artificially darkened his skin? Yeah. Ah. Let's pull it up here. Ooh, yeah. It's bad. They're using the image of the mugshot, which every press outlet has. And so people are trying to like make their thing look different somehow. Oh, um, and yeah. it's like, just settle for having the same picture as everyone else, buddy. You'll get new pictures next week. Yeah, this is the Time Magazine cover next to a Newsweek cover. And the Time Magazine one is like way darker. It also helps that they both come out at the same time. So people are just, you're just looking at what magazine to buy and you're like, huh. Yeah. One of these pictures depicts the O.J. Simpson I remember. Yeah. And one of them does not. Although interestingly, the Newsweek cover doesn't darken O.J.'s skin, but the headline is Trail of Blood, which kind mm -hmm. of makes him seem guilty. Whereas the Time cover, where his skin is darkened, the headline is An American Tragedy, which kind of doesn't make him seem guilty. Can you talk about what this contrast has done to just our perception of his face like it's very it's very weird like we can't see the corners of his lips it's like his jawline sort of disappears into his neck because yeah. it's like so dark i mean like you can see his cheeks the top of his cheeks the middle of his forehead and his eyes yeah it's like morticia adams you can only see like that little window of his face yeah so the argument of course is that he has become america's generic fear the black criminal and that's the ethos that time is trying to go for. And the artist who made it says, no, no, not at all. I guess uh, what he the statement we have is much like a stage director would lower the lights on a somber scene. I use my long established style to give the image a dramatic tone. And like, I guess what I would like to say about that is that like, I think it looks bad. And there's obviously racist implications in this image that like, Either Time knew about it, or perhaps more likely given who worked there, they just didn't pick up on it. And that's the fault of their hiring practices. But also, I think it's just weird to think about lighting dramatically someone who 
is inside of a murder case. And it's a mugshot. Like, no one's going to look at it and think that it's, like, whimsical, you know, clown music playing in the background. Like, it's plenty somber. (laughs) Plenty somber. And here's what Paula says about this cover. When I first saw OJ's darkened mugshot on the cover, it didn't strike me as sinister. I found it heartbreaking instead. What terrible shape he must be in, I thought. If people focused on the color of OJ's skin, some might see darkness or shadows or mystery. But I looked at OJ's eyes, and they were very telling. They told me that this person was shattered, maybe beyond repair. When OJ found out that the cover had been enhanced by computer, he was irate. He thought he was being railroaded, not only by Marsha Clark, but now by the press. And so Paula, you know, she stays at the Whitehurst. She kind of remains as distant from all this as she can be, but she isn't really eating and she's having a hard time leaving the house because if she leaves the house, she might miss a call from OJ. And if she misses a call from OJ, she might not be able to like keep sustaining him emotionally. Bad. (laughs) Get a pager, Paula. (laughs) And so finally she and Terry and Debbie go on a trip to the mall. And so she's trying on a floppy hat and she hears someone say, that's Paul Barbieri. That's OJ Simpson's girlfriend. And then This is my favorite anecdote. Another time we went to a supermarket in a little bitty town, the kind of place where you figured nobody watched Ted Koppel. We started grabbing pies and gallons of ice cream, all these great things that I normally loved but now couldn't bring myself to eat. As we piled our baskets high, our butts hanging out of the freezer compartment, I got the weirdest sensation. I stood up and turned around, and everyone in the store was staring back in total silence. After that, I mostly stayed in. Hmm. Isn't it just a weird mental image? Like, can you picture that? Like, you're going into the freezer and you're, like, rummaging around and you want to find Chunky Monkey, (laughs) and then you realize that it's, like, weirdly quiet, and you turn and you realize that just the other shoppers are staring at you? It's like a nightmare. I just assume that this is what it's like for hot people constantly. (laughs) It's just like there's a record scratch as soon as you walk into any room and everybody drops what they're doing. But then she's registering that this is more than normal getting stared at. So it must be a lot of staring. Yeah. So, okay. But finally, Paula leaves Tennessee to go to her mom's house. This is when she tells us that she is concerned for her own life still. Okay. And she says, my mother and I lived in terror. What if the murders in Brentwood had been drug related? What if I were the next target? Uh, I had the house alarmed and perimeter floodlights installed. I mean, it makes sense. If she doesn't think OJ did it, somebody did it. And it's probably the Colombian cartel lords or whatever. That's what Alan Dershowitz thinks. So, I mean, he's right about everything. Yeah. So she's back in the house in Bay Point that she bought for her mom with her modeling money. And the terror of this murder that her friend has, based on even the evidence that we have at this point, very likely committed, that is driving them closer together. Mm. And OJ calls, and when he's having a hard day, Paula's mom reads to him from the Bible. Oh, man. She writes, I couldn't explain what was happening inside me, not to myself, much less to mom. All I knew was what I heard on the phone each day, a man so distraught that he sounded like a wounded animal. Our old problems belong to a life I could barely remember. When you've loved someone who gets into a terrible car crash or comes down with a grave disease, you don't think about the person's faults. You don't dwell on what may have driven you apart. You're reminded instead of why you loved each other and what a hole would be left in your heart if the person was gone. I had to keep talking, talking, talking to him. When I heard how desperate he sounded, there just wasn't a choice. No other friend could support him the way I could. 
The weird thing is, she's being nostalgic for a relationship that never existed. They were never Hmm. in like a particularly functional relationship. It sounds like it was always kind of off and on. It was always a little awkward. He was always sort of one foot with Nicole and wasn't really committing to Paula in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's weird that she's now constructing like, oh, we can go back to the good times when it's not even clear that the good times were all that good. Well, these actually are the good times in a way because like he's in jail. He can't cheat on her. This is the only time when he can't cheat on her. Yeah. And he needs her. She's his only option right now. Yeah. Well, and also, like, he can't be ambivalent between her and Nicole because he killed Nicole. So Paula is the final girl. Yes. So in the midst of all this, eating spaghetti and crabs with her mom back in Florida and reading the Bible to O.J. Simpson, Paula's 10th high school anniversary happens. (laughs) So does she go? She goes. She basically says that she goes and then realizing that all these kids that she grew up with that she thought of as being from the normal families while she was from, you know, the family with the scary dad and the scary Mm -hmm. stepdad and and everything else, like other people have had a hard time of it, too. She has classmates who have died. She has, you know, tragedy making the rounds. And she says... How I'd envied those normal Bay Point families. I'd assumed they were immune to the violence I grew up with in St. Andrews. Now I saw they were more like us than I knew. Well, I didn't take pleasure in other people's pain. It was a relief to be able to think, poor them, poor them, instead of poor me, poor me. Why can't we do this at the time? This is like everybody's experience of reconnecting with people after high school or after these very distinct periods of your life where you're like, oh, everyone else was super fucked up too. But for whatever reason, we couldn't talk about it. It's such a bummer. I do remember having a philosophy class senior year, like spring semester of senior year, that was kind of like this, where I think because everyone was leaving, there Mm -hmm. was a sense of being able to kind of open up and be honest about our experiences of having been in high school together. And that was the moment when I personally was like, oh, these kids who I thought of as having an easy time because they weren't me were having a hard time. And I just didn't notice that because I I was very busy with my own hard time. And it just like, yeah, it does something to you. Yeah, I've reconnected with some people from my high school who were like way more popular than me and were like totally had their shit together. And then, of course, they start telling me like all the shit they were actually going through in high school. And it like always takes a second for it to sink in. Like you had problems, like you had challenges <laughs> in your life. Like I've been projecting this perfection onto you for years for really no yeah. reason. Like that's all my own shit. I love how like we just have these Paula episodes and we just clearly both are Paula. And it's just like <laughs> us just loving on Paula this whole time. <laughs> so we talked in a previous episode about how Paula found Jesus when she was a kid mm-hmm. and She goes back to her pastor from her youth in Florida, Jack Reese, and goes in to talk to him about spirituality and talk about the Bible. And she says, typically, I began that first meeting by asking for help for OJ rather than for myself. Uh, Was there anything in the Bible about persecution, some scripture to help a man unjustly accused? I had to believe that OJ was being persecuted, that the DA's office was out to get him for their own malicious reasons. I saw OJ as a martyr because a martyr was innocent by definition. I was going to say, like, shouldn't he be reading her some Bible passages about the pitfalls of abusive relationships, but the Bible's actually not great on that stuff. Right, I was going to say, is there, <laughs> is there stuff in the Bible about that? I know. Can he read to her from, like, the feminine mystique? 
instead? <laughs> Are they allowed to do that? Well, this is good. She says, Jack was wonderful. While giving me the verses I asked for, he steered clear of any talk of OJ. As Jack pointed out, the only person you have control over is yourself, and lots of times you don't even have that. Mm. We focused that day on respecting God's boundaries, or what Jack called staying inside the fence. He referred me to Deuteronomy. Our Heavenly Father wasn't oppressive or abusive, Jack explained. He set boundaries, not to inhibit or restrict us, but to protect us. Mm. I love this idea that, like, you just totally circumvent. You don't even bother being like, would you like to have boundaries, Paula? It's because, like, you know, God has boundaries. Is this chapter called Deuteronomy, Where's My Car? (laughs) Sorry. So, okay, she's in Florida with her mom. You know, she's still talking to OJ. She's having these moments of clarity, it seems at times, but like it just all comes back to OJ. Mm. Eventually, OJ is like, when are you going to come back to L.A.? And he's going to put her on the list of material witnesses, which is going to mean that she can visit him much more frequently. Mm. And, you know, she delays and delays and feels guiltier and guiltier and... In mid-August, she tells him that she's going to come soon. Mm. And she says, I was excited, too. It wasn't just guilt and responsibility that were driving me to L.A. I missed that man. I'd grown accustomed to his face. When I finally reserved my flight to Los Angeles, I booked my ticket under an assumed name, D.H. Lawrence, the author of Sons and Lovers, an old favorite of mine. Everything went smoothly out of Panama City. But when I walked to my connecting flight in Atlanta, I felt creepily on display, as if I were in a glass jar for public inspection. As I handed my ticket and driver's license to the Delta counter person, I said softly, You understand? The woman smiled and said, Oh yeah, I understand. I didn't realize it at the time, but I wasn't just losing frequent flyer miles with my fake name. The instant I boarded that plane to Los Angeles, I lost my identity. Yes! I mean, it seems like she should have used the distance as an excuse to sort of let this fade away. It's like kids that study abroad. Right? How often does your ex get put in jail? I know. A place where they they literally can't bother you. I know. Uh, Paula, don't get on the plane. She got on that plane, man. Uh. And yeah, this is where I want to end for now, is with Paula on the plane heading back to LA, going back to stand by her man, and Mm -hmm. after a summer's worth of legal maneuvering and investigation and a growing mountain of damning evidence against the defendant, And we're going to jump into other people's perspectives in the new year and keep going Mm. with the story. But yeah, for now, I just want to be sitting on this plane with Paula looking out the window, watching L.A. get closer and closer and trying to figure out, like, what am I feeling? Like, what is this love that I'm feeling for this person? Like, do they value me? They have to, right? Did he kill anyone? Yeah. He can't have, right? And... Do they have Chunky Monkey in L.A. that I can go get at the store? (laughs) And can I at least get ice cream without people staring at my butt? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 